Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast with me, Razia Iqbal. We are, of course, fast approaching the winner announcement on November the 24th. As part of our special shortlist celebration, we're today going to focus on Amy Stanley's new book, Stranger in the Shogun City, A Woman's Life in 19th Century Japan. Stranger in Shogun City is a deeply researched work of history that explores the life of an unconventional woman during the first half of the 19th century in Edo, the city that would become Tokyo, and a portrait of a great city on the brink of a momentous encounter with the West. Prize director Toby Mundy recently spoke with Amy Stanley via Zoom. Listen now to hear that conversation. Hello and welcome to the latest In Conversation with the Bailey Gifford Prize 2020. I'm delighted to welcome Amy Stanley, who is Professor of History at Northwestern University and is the author of an extraordinary book, Stranger in the Shogun City, which is shortlisted for this year's award. Uh, Amy, welcome and congratulations. Thank you. Um, There's so many things I could ask you about. Unfortunately, we don't have all day. I mean, where did the idea for this book come from? How how, How did it begin? Tell us. It began with me looking for something to assign to my students in my survey class about early modern Japanese history. So I am very much into the history of women, obviously, in the history of everyday life uh, in villages and in cities. And I didn't have enough material in English to translate, to give to my students so they would understand uh, what this period was actually about from a kind of first person perspective. So I was looking around on the websites of Japanese archives, trying to find materials that I could translate myself and assign to them. And I ended up on the website of the Niigata Prefectural Archives, which is a public archive in an area of Japan where I had already done some research. And they had this wonderful document reading course um, online, the Internet Komonjo Koza, which is a way of reaching out to the community to show people who live in the area what kinds of things are in the archives so that they'll hopefully come in and see them for themselves. And episode 12 of the internet document reading course was a letter from Tsunino. I didn't know anything about Tsunino at the time. In fact, I couldn't even read her name. I thought it was Tsuno and I clicked on it and I couldn't read it at all because it was this destroyed style of calligraphy which made no sense to me. But luckily there was a transcription. And since I can read 19th century Japanese, I could make my way through it. And it was this amazing letter to her mother from Edo, which is the city that's now Tokyo. And she said that she was working for a rich man as a maidservant and that she was getting pocket money. And the line that really stopped me in my tracks was she said, everything here is delicious. And it sounded to me exactly like myself writing home from my first trip to Tokyo in 1997 as a college sophomore. I mean, everything (laughs) in Tokyo really is delicious. So I was just intrigued by this voice and I needed to know more about this woman. The archives said that they had a bunch of other letters about her in their collection. And even though I knew that I wouldn't be able to read them, I had to fly to Niigata to see these letters for myself. So tell us a little bit about the world that Suneno grew up in. Did this? I want to ask about Edo separately, but tell us about where she grew up and what this world was like in the early 19th century. 
So Sunano grew up in an area that is often called Japan's snow country in Echigo province. And she grew up in the snowiest part of the snow country. <laughs> um, there was so much snow that people had to climb up to their rooftops every night and shovel the snow off of the roof and pile it up on the ground because otherwise the snow would be too heavy and the houses would collapse. <laughs> so we are talking about feet and feet and feet of, of snow all winter. Um, and the old people would say it was freezing from equinox to equinox. And that meant that life in this area of Japan was very hard. Um, you know, you can imagine right now it's inconvenient when it snows and we have snow plows and, you know, all sorts of technology to help us out. Um, so these were people who lived through very dark, cold winters who were mostly involved in agriculture, in growing rice. Um, and the area was known for being poor. So people there tended to have a lot of children. Many of them ended up indentured to dance troops or brothels because their parents couldn't feed them and pay taxes. Um, luckily, Tsunino was the daughter of a Buddhist temple. And that meant that her family had an elevated status in the village, that they were fairly prosperous, and that she learned how to read. And so she grew up in a kind of privileged situation, but in a place where life was very difficult and where she was surrounded by poverty. And would it be fair to say that it wasn't just the land that was frozen, but the kind of custom and practice was a little frozen as well? <laughs> um, I think that in any kind of early modern agricultural society, which this was, people depend on tradition in order to get through the day, the week, the month, the year. Um, and having expectations for how people should behave was one way of ensuring that everybody knew what to do so that they could make it from year to year. Yeah. And the expectations for women, as well as the expectations for men, those gender roles were fairly rigid. Mm -hmm. So women were supposed to grow up and get married. There were very few spinsters in early modern Japan, which makes it somewhat unlike early modern Europe. Um, and women, once they married, were expected to have children, to raise them, to contribute to the functioning of the household however they could, whether that was as a priest's wife who would entertain parishioners and help run funerals, or as a farming woman who would literally go out in the fields and help with the harvest. So this was a society in which people's expectations for their lives were pretty clear, and there was some deviation from those norms, but it was difficult to do. And, and this is the world into which she grew up, but this is not the world in which she stayed, I don't think, is it? Um, no. So, so she, was, she was married very, very, very early by our standards, but not so early by the standards of the time, I presume. Yes. So she was married at the age of 12, yeah. which is kind of shocking. And even I, when I first read the age, I double and triple checked it because 12, even in the context of early modern Japan, is very young, um, even for a first marriage. Yeah. And there were references in the family papers to this idea that we know that she married very young, but it seems to have been a custom in her family because her aunt also married at the age of 12 or 13. And she was not only married at the age of 12, but she was sent away to a distant province to marry a man that she had never met. Now her family knew him, and he was the priest at a Buddhist temple. So he had a job that was exactly like her father's job. And this was the destiny that had been laid out for her, that she would have a life that was a lot like her mother's in that she would marry a priest and be the mistress of a Buddhist temple. Unfortunately, that did not work out for her. So they, uh, she, they, they 
divorced after 14 years, is that right? Yes, um, 14 or 15 years. Does, does the archive reveal the grounds for divorce or what happened? It doesn't, and that's very, very frustrating um, <laughs> because that part of her life is pretty much a blank. There are no letters home from her first marriage, and even though we know who the man was and where his temple was, there are no records. So interestingly, that temple called Jōganji in Oishida which is now in Yamagata Prefecture, is still there. Um, and so I went to visit this temple where she had her first marriage. So in some sense, I have a very direct experience of what that area and what that life might have felt like, but I have no documents to go on. So in that section of the book, I really had to imagine based on having been there and seen the place and also knowing about life in Buddhist temples in general, how that marriage might have gone. But I can only imagine in the book and speculate about what might have caused that first divorce. Wow. So 14 years, she's still incredibly young, 26, 27, and she's back in the world. And then she goes through two other marriages in relatively quick succession. Is that right? <laughs> yes. So the second of her marriages was to a wealthy peasant who was at least about a day's walk from her family, but in a more mountainous area and an even snowier area of the snow country. And what was unfortunate about that marriage was that it coincided with a disastrous famine in which the harvest failed for four years straight Goodness. and the annual death rate in that area tripled. So she was living through this enormous social crisis all around her and trying to also make this second marriage work. But it failed and she was divorced and sent home at the during the peak year of the famine, when actually there was a lot of divorce because as we know, social stress causes families to fall apart. Yeah, yeah. So she was sent home, but amazingly, her brother found four other people who were willing to marry her, this being her third marriage. And she went off once again, this time to the castle town to marry a very different sort of man. But that marriage was even more disastrous and it only lasted about five months before she was sent home, now three times divorced. Wow. And she's and then and then very still relative, but never having had any children, I think, but relatively, uh, relatively young by contemporary standards, probably a little older by the standards of her time. At the age of 39, she does a flit. Yes. <laughs> so um, she <laughs> that's a British way of saying it that I've never heard before. <laughs> I'm going to use that all the time. She does a flit. Um, so what she does is um, her brother is planning to marry her off yet again. This would be her fourth marriage to a widower. And she said very clearly, I do not want to marry a widower in some terrible place. And it's it's fair to say, isn't it, that the 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 the, the her husbands were getting older and older, wasn't weren't they? <laughs> That's probably true. Yeah. Um, that her husbands were also getting older and older as she was getting older and older. Yeah. You know, one of the things I thought when I first wrote the book was that the problem was the widower, um, that she didn't want to be married to some old man, and probably that was a lot of the problem. But then I think I didn't pay enough attention to the fact that she said in a terrible place because she had spent four years struggling through the years, the temple famine in a farming village. And I imagine that she did not want to go back to that kind of existence, that yeah. that in itself was, was traumatic. So she told her brother that she was going to visit her, her other brother who lived in a castle town, who was a doctor, and that she was going from there to some hot springs. And instead she met a man of her acquaintance, 
who had told her that he would bring her to the big city of Edo, which she said she had always wanted to see. Wow. I want to ask you about the kind of place that Edo was when she arrived there. But before that, I think you're going to read a little bit for us, aren't you? And we'd love to hear, um, we'd love to hear an excerpt from the book, if you don't mind. Yes. Um, so this excerpt, unusually, is from toward the end of the book. And I chose it because I think it sums up some of the main ideas and the reasons behind why I wrote this book. Sunino couldn't have seen her life in heroic terms as contributing to the building or opening of nations or the emergence of a new era. She was one person, an individual, a woman who made choices and, as she might have seen it, left very little behind. No children, no legacy, just letters. But if women like her hadn't come in from the countryside, Edo wouldn't have grown. If they hadn't washed floors, sold charcoal, kept the books, done laundry, and served food, its economy could not have functioned. And if they hadn't bought theater tickets, hairpins, bolts of cloth, and bowls of noodles, the Shogun's great city wouldn't have been a city at all. It would have been a dusty military outpost full of men, one of a thousand, not worth all the effort. Sunino's legacy was the great city of Edo, her ambition, her life's work. Her aspiration for a different kind of existence propelled her from home, and she might have said that the experience of Edo changed her. But she also shaped the city, every well she waited at, every copper coin she spent, every piece of clothing she pawned or mended, every tray she carried, the big decision to migrate, and every tiny choice she made later in the days and years that followed. They made households function and sent the peddlers on their rounds. They made it possible for the city magistrate to issue his edicts. They sent the peasants out to the safflower fields in Dewa province and the wholesalers to market in Kanda. They lit the lanterns in the Nakamura theater, they built the great stores at Nihonbashi. The city wasn't just a backdrop to Tsunino's life, it was a place she created day by day. And when she died, other women, other unknown people would take up her work. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderfully written as well. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about this city. Edo is one of the largest cities in the world. It's a place of her imagination before she's ever been there, isn't it? She's been thinking about what this place is like. So tell us what this place is like. It's it sounds extraordinary. It's one of the big, it's one of the great characters of your book, I think, actually. <laughs> yes, I sometimes think of it as a dual biography. One of the main characters is Tsuneno, and the other is the city of Edo. And the story that unfolds is a love story uh, between Tsuneno and this city that she chose for her life. So Edo is, as I said, the old name for what is now the city of Tokyo. And in 1800, it had about 1.2 million people. And for comparison, London at the time had about 800,000. Yeah. So this was a bigger city than the largest city in Europe. And it was about comparable with, to Beijing, which had 1.1 million. Um, so this was a thriving metropolis. And it was also a military headquarters. So at the center of the city of Edo was the Shogun's castle. And Japan had both a shogun and an emperor. The emperor lived in Kyoto and was mostly concerned with writing poetry and doing ceremonies. But the shogun was the real power in the realm. And he lived at the heart of the city, surrounded by samurai, um, his warriors, 
who were supposed to guard the city and also guard the castle. And so about half the population of the city was samurai and their families um, who had this kind of military bearing and function. Although as I go into in the book, samurai are not exactly the figures that we imagine them to be. Um, and the other half of the city was commoners, people who had flocked to the city initially to serve the rulers, right, to provision the castle and to make sure that the armies had everything they needed. But over the centuries had created their own thriving popular culture, their own dense city neighborhoods. And one amazing fact about Edo is that compared to modern Tokyo, the commoner neighborhoods of Edo were even more densely crowded than wow. the neighborhoods of Tokyo today. And this is entirely with one and two story construction. <laughs> so you can imagine this very dense, very crowded, very vital, and in some ways somewhat unstable city. But it was a creative city as well though, wasn't it? I mean, it, it, was, it, it was vibrating with, with creativity. You portray that brilliantly in the book, I think. It really was. So one of the things that this book allows me to do is that because Tsuneno lived in the theater district for part of her time there in a house that was owned by a star of the Kabuki theater who was known for playing women's roles, I am really able to talk about the kind of the, the attractive and intriguing and slightly seedy world of Edo theater, which will probably remind readers who are more familiar with American or British history of the London or New York theater scenes. Um, and also, this was a city that was bursting with artists, with the kind of famous woodblock printers like Hokusai, who was one of Tsuneno's contemporaries. And then there was creativity on a kind of very small scale, which was that many of these commoners who lived in Edo in these tiny little tenement rooms were using those rooms to fabricate all sorts of items. They were artisans making tatami mats or wooden bowls um, or silver pipes, or they were making woodblock prints. So there's a tremendous amount of work and also creativity and vitality in this city. Wow. And um, I noticed one of your reviewers said it, it, was, it was actually in many ways remarkably reminiscent of Victorian England which is to say, what, what was the reviewer said, which is to say it was deeply expressive once you, once you knew how to read the codes, if you like. I, I was Catherine Hughes in The Guardian said that, didn't she? I was really delighted with that um, because it's not just about thinking about Edo as a place that is familiar to us. So sometimes we think about Japan as, you know, unimaginably exotic and we will never understand that place. And I think that even comes out today when we're thinking about, um, for example, COVID-19 and the pandemic and how has Japan managed to be so successful and people sometimes kind of dismiss Japan as well, that's a very different place with a different culture and we can't learn anything from them. Um, so part of the aim of my book was to, to make people understand that Edo actually was a city much like London and that cities all over the world have these elements in common. Is it, but, is it fair to say that sections of Japanese society continue to also promote the idea of the Japanese are exceptional and different as well, though? Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Okay. It's a kind of, it's a form of cultural nationalism. Of course, right? and everyone does um, it, yeah. Yeah, and everybody does it. So it's not just our fault, right, that we're exoticizing Japan. Sometimes Japanese commentators will say, you know, well, the reason Japan is so successful at X thing is because of ancient Japanese culture. And it's usually kind of made up. Um, but the other thing that I th that made me 
kind of think about my book differently about reading that review was that, you know, I wrote this book kind of as a 19th century novel. Um, if you read it, it really is almost like, um, you know, you go from cradle to grave with the same protagonist. The city is in itself a character. We look at the kind of resonance between somebody's petty everyday life and the kind of grand social changes that are going on and eventually affect that life. And so I think it's probably not a surprise that given that that was one of my models in writing, that it would end up having this resonance with something like Dickens, right? Because that well, is- Well, Balzac I thought of actually as well. Yeah. Um, and I actually was, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the UK since being shortlisted for this wonderful prize. <laughs> and I also have been thinking about, you know, the ways in which British literature was actually an inspiration in writing this book. So I'm a historian, I write nonfiction, but I love novels. I was going and to I, ask you about that. Your 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 style is ex, you have an a, astonishingly um, wonderful prose style. It's a remarkable read. This book. I mean, it it is it is as close to. I mean, everything you say is is substantiated and researched. But it feels like you're reading a novel as well. Where where wh who are your literary inspirations? I mean, where how did you develop this style? It's amazing. <laughs> so um, I'm going to be a cliche. But uh, my favorite book is Wolf Hall. So Hilary Mantel's style of being able to draw you into Cromwell's world by explaining how it felt and how it looked and the kind of material culture that surrounded him. She writes a lot about food, for example. Um, so that was one of my inspirations. Now, obviously, she writes fiction, so she can delve into his mind and explain his psychology. And I can't do that with Tsuneno. So I have limits that a novelist wouldn't hit. Uh, but when I was thinking about, you know, what makes historical fiction so wonderful? Um, another one of my models that was kind of subconscious is Virginia Woolf, Mrs. Dalloway, right? One woman, one day, one city, and she can show you an entire world. And that's because she's not only going into the consciousness of her protagonist, which is something that I am usually unable to do, but she's showing you in these vivid terms what that city of London looked like at a particular moment in time. And so those are the techniques that I was trying to bring to bear on my own nonfiction. And the reason I thought it was important to do that was not just because you know, readers will have a better experience of reading this book if it reads to them like a novel, but because history and historical fiction tend to be gendered differently. Like women tend to read more, speaking in very broad terms, women tend to read more historical fiction and men tend to read more kind of history. history and, yes. I, and I was thinking about, you know, why is that? And it's because often the protagonists of, you know, big capital H history are famous men. And women are interested in reading about other women and often about ordinary lives. And so I was thinking, you know, if I can fill in some of that texture for people to illuminate this one ordinary life, this might be something that women themselves are interested in reading in a type of history that is more democratic and more accessible. That's all the time we have. Although I could, I still haven't, I didn't want to get to speak to you about food, which you write about wonderfully, <laughs> and about all the other things in the book. But that was a huge pleasure, Amy. Thank you so much for making the time and congratulations Thank again. Thank you. That's all we have time for in this special mini edition of Read Smart. Thank you once more to Toby and Amy for a really interesting conversation. The 2020 winner will be announced on November the 24th. 
That'll be in a special virtual ceremony, so do please follow at BG Prize on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram to hear more about how to watch the ceremony live. We'll be back later this week with our final podcast on the shortlist featuring Kate Summerscale, author of The Haunting of Alma Fielding, a true ghost story. Thanks again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their support of this podcast. Until the next time, bye-bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.